Hi, friends. Welcome to Have You Met Her, a podcast about amazing women. I'm Paige, and I'm on a journey to dig into the lesser-known women in history and share some of their stories with you. This month, we're diving into the stories of four women who understood the power of words, specifically the written words. Women writers who made incredible changes through their talents, creativity, honesty, and bravery. In this episode, we're going to be talking about one of the greatest Latin American poets, a woman who has been referred to as the Tenth Muse and the Phoenix of America. Her contributions to the culture in Mexico are so recognized that her face appears on the national currency. Here's episode seven, Have You Met Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz? Juana Inez Diaz Bayo Ramirez de Santiano was born around October of 1651 to an unmarried Creole mother and a Spanish father in central New Spain, also known as Colonial Mexico. Juana's father was never a part of her life, but she had a close relationship with her mother's large family, including five siblings. Juana's grandfather, a man of modest means who owned two profitable haciendas, allowed Juana's mother, Isabel, to manage one of the haciendas so their family lived a comfortable life. 17th century Mexico was a colony of Spain called La Nueva España, New Spain. Mexico City was built atop the heart of the Aztec Empire ruins, and it was here that the viceroy, who was the representative of the King of Spain, lived there. It was a complicated men's world where the three most influential systems in New Spain were distinct but overlapped in authority, the university, the court, and the church. The university represented knowledge and was accessible only to men at the time. The court was the point of contact with Europe and European culture. And the church? The church controlled knowledge and determined acceptable culture. There was also a very firm caste system. At the top were people with Spanish-blooded parents that had been born in Spain and then later moved to Mexico. These were often the members of the court. Next were people of white Spanish blood who were born in the New World. This was where Juana Inez fell on the social ladder. Lastly were people who had one Spanish-blooded parent and one indigenous parent. In New Spain, a young woman's value was in her virtue, her dowry, and her physical beauty. If women could marry well, specifically Spaniards, they would have higher social standing. While Juana's great beauty was obvious when she was quite young, there was something much, much more important to her than who she could marry. Juana had a passion for knowledge. Her appetite for learning was insatiable. Her grandfather had an extensive library and Juana would sneak books from his collection and she taught herself to read from them. It said in multiple counts that by age three, she had taught herself to read and write in Latin. At five, she could reconcile the ledger and accounts relating to the hacienda. 
At eight, she had learned Greek and had written her first poem. And by her early adolescence, she had mastered Greek logic and taught herself Nahuatl, the native language of the Aztecs, which was still widely used. In fact, Nahuatl, along with Spanish, were the official languages of New Spain. Learning and writing poems in Nahuatl was Juana's way of paying tribute to the land where she was born. Juana begged to go to school and even asked her mother if she could disguise herself as a boy and attend the university in Mexico City. Her mother said no. To outsiders, it may appear that Juana was manic in her passions, but in reality, she really desired to be disciplined. When she was still a young girl, she happened to overhear a conversation that said eating cheese made people rude and behave in foolish ways. From that point on, Juana refused to eat cheese. Juana's grandfather passed away in 1664 when she was around 16, and her mother sent her to live with an aunt in Mexico City. Although she wasn't able to receive any formal education there, she was allowed to continue to study independently and with an occasional tutor. By this time, Juana was well-versed in science, music, mathematics, botany, history, and multiple languages. Her passion for learning seemed to grow with every new discovery, and it was infinitely greater than her willingness to submit to the traditional standards of beauty. It's said that when Juana struggled to learn fast enough, she would cut off her hair in frustration. Outwardly, Juana's life was privileged. However, gender bias was a real experience in colonial Mexico. Women, no matter their station, were second-class citizens and had very limited opportunities and education. Juana's drive for learning and her thirst for knowledge were so strong that her mischievous acts of defiance against these societal norms was an act of survival for her passionate heart. Juana's family was respected well enough, and she was high enough in the caste system that she was offered the position of lady-in-waiting at the colonial viceroy's court. She tended to Vicerine Donna Eleonora del Carado, a member of one of Italy's most illustrious families. Her husband was the Viceroy Marquis de Mancero. In their household, Juana was appreciated for her intellect and beauty. She had a deep knowledge of so many subjects, and her writing, her plays and poetry were celebrated by the courtesans. The educated class of New Spain loved Juana's writings and her many poems, and were sent to Spain, India, and the Philippines by her caretakers. This smart, charismatic girl intrigued the Marquis, and wanting to test how deep her understanding and knowledge was, he came up with a plan. He invited 17-year-old Juana to meet with a group of theologians, jurists, philosophers, and poets. It said that there were 40 educated men in the room, and after hours of questioning Juana about mathematic equations, scientific discoveries, and literary subjects, there was a no doubt that not only was Juana extraordinarily intelligent, she was also calm, confident, and well-behaved. It was said by one of the scholars who participated in this inquisition that seeing Juana match wits with this learned group was like watching a royal galleon fend off a few canoes. She left the meeting with an elevated reputation and multiple marriage proposals. 
Juana's writings were controversial and ahead of their time. She wrote of the sexist double standards of New Spain and the unequal treatment of men and women. Reading her poems, it's clear why many consider Juana the New World's very first feminist. One of her poems, titled You Foolish Men, accuses men of the illogical behavior that they criticize in women. It says, You foolish men who lay the guilt on women, not seeing you're the cause of the very thing you blame. If you invite their disdain with measureless desire, why wish they well behaved if you incite to ill? You fight their stubbornness, then weightily, you say it was their lightness when it was your guile. In all your crazy shows, you act just like a child who plays the boogeyman of which he's then afraid. With foolish arrogance, you hope to find a face in her you court. But a Lucretia, when you've possessed her, what kind of mind is odder than his who missed a mirror and then complains that it's not clear? Their favor and disdain you hold in equal state. If they mistreat you, complain. You mock if they treat you well. No woman wins esteem of you. The most modest is ungrateful if she refuses to admit you, yet if she does, she's loose. You always are so foolish, your censure is unfair. One you blame for cruelty, the other for being easy. What must her temper, who offends, when she's ungrateful, and wearies, one compliant? But with the anger and the grief that your pleasure tells, good luck to her who doesn't love you and you go on and complain. Who has embraced the greater blame and passion? She who solicited falls or he who fallen pleads. Who is more to blame though either should do wrong? She who sins for pay or he who pays for sin? Why be outraged at the guilt that is of your own doing? Have them as you make them, or make them what you will. Leave off your wooing, and then, with greater cause, you can blame the passion of her who comes to court. Patent is your arrogant that fights with many weapons, since in promise and insistence you join world, flesh, and devil. I don't know about you, but I think that a lot of women everywhere, even now, are still faced with the struggles that Juana speaks of. After all, wasn't it Usher that said they want a lady in the streets but a freak in the bed? It said that Juana had a strong disinclination to marry. She also had no desire to have a fixed occupation, which would get in the way of her freedom to study and explore subjects that intrigued her. Being creative and driven, she came up with a plan. Although she wasn't especially pious, she decided that her best option would be to become a cloistered nun. In 1667, she entered the convent of St. Joseph, a strict order of the Discalced Carmelites. Entering a convent wasn't easy. A dowry and proof of genealogical purity were required. If you remember, Juana was born to an unwed mother, so she had to falsify her background and say that she was legitimate. 
Communal living, silence, and self-abuse for penance was not a good fit for our passionate rule-bender friend. So she transferred to another convent, the San Geronimo Convent of the Hieronymite Order, where she took her vows in 1669. She became Sor, meaning sister, Sor Juana, and remained cloistered there for the rest of her life. Because Sor Juana's new order was more lenient, it allowed her the protection of community and the time to indulge in her studies and research. She was given her own apartment, complete with a kitchen, bathroom, and a parlor, and time to study and to write. She was able to correspond via letters with other scholars and the powerful members of the court, and spent time composing music, both secular and religious. She taught music and drama to the girls who attended the convent school and acted as the convent's archivist and accountant. She had the patronage of the Viceroy and Vicerine of New Spain and an especially tight bond with the Marquis de la Laguna. With this support, she was able to grow an impressive library, one of the largest private libraries in the New World, with over 4,000 volumes and a collection of musical and scientific instruments. Now, she was a nun, so she was not allowed to leave the convent, but the courtesans would come visit her and bring her presents. And then they would send her poems and essays to Spain to have them published there. Even though she was a nun, she also became the unofficial court poet in the 1680s. During this time, Sorwana was very prolific. She wrote poems, plays, songs, religious services, and would even write speeches and declarations for state festivals. She was an expert at writing in all the popular forms of the time and was especially loved because of her ability to bring both seriousness and comical themes into her works. But just under the surface of most of her creations, we can find her constant message of women being the seat of reason and knowledge and not of silly passion as her male contemporaries opined. Women, in her opinion, were always underestimated. Sorwana's love poems spoke in the first person and talked of women's disillusionment with love. She said love was respect and acceptance, not lust. She also wrote plays where the main characters were daring and genius women. No one knows for sure when Sorwana wrote what is considered her most important and difficult poem. Now, when I say poem, I'm not talking about sing-songy rhyming or Dr. Seuss-type poems. I'm talking about 975 lines of beautiful and personal descriptions of Sorwana's soul's quest for knowledge. The poem is called First Dream, and in it, Sorwana describes how at night when her body falls asleep, her soul is free to go out on its own in a quest and try to gain knowledge total knowledge. In the morning, as the sun rises and the soul re-enters her body, every piece of her is still driving to continue the quest for knowledge. 
I think that this poem especially shows the constant struggle that Sorwana felt for knowledge and the heavy anchor that she felt was her gender. Sorwana was receiving recognition and fame throughout Mexico and Spain, but with this popularity came a shove under the microscope of church officials. She stopped meeting with her Jesuit confessor, Antonio Nunez de Miranda, in early 1680 because of his disapproval of her works. She wrote him a letter in 1681 out of frustration. It said, The cause of your anger has been none other than the ability that God has given me in creating these wretched verses without first asking permission from your reverence. This break from her confessor had her in a tailspin, and then her benefactors, who were the Marquis and Marquise de Laguna, returned to Spain. They had always been huge supporters and offered her a certain amount of protection from critics. These losses of support were certainly unsettling, and Sorwana was feeling defenseless and probably a little frightened of what her future could look like. It seemed like her world was crumbling. In November of 1690, a local bishop, Manuel Fernandez de Santa Cruz, found a letter that Sorwana had written a critique of a 40-year-old sermon by a Portuguese Jesuit preacher, Antonio Vieira. He was the confessor of Cristina of Sweden. It was Sorwana's only theological composition and had been written at the request of an unknown friend. Essentially, Sorwana's critique was of the father's interpretation of a phrase attributed to Christ in the Gospel of John. The verse says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. In Sorwana's opinion, Christ's love differs from that of humans. She saw that humans wished love to be returned for their own sakes. She believed that Christ's love was different. He wished to be loved not for his sake, but for the sake of others, for the sake of the people who loved him. As Sorwana saw it, Christ desires a person to love others for his or her own sake, not for the return of love it might bring. This contradicted the opinion set forth by Father Vieira and quite literally ticked off Bishop Cruz. Having a woman, even if she was a nun, disagree with a man was a challenge to the hierarchical structure of religious authority. Without Sorwana's permission, the bishop published her letter which he called Letter Worthy of Athena and attributed it to a fictional sister fealty. He also included a personal response of his own following the letter. He said that sisters should focus on religious studies, stay pious, and should not be focused on finding faults with religious scholars or wasting their time on their own writings. Later that same year, Sordwana wrote a collection of carols praising St. Catherine of Alexandria. St. Catherine was a princess and a scholar who was martyred at a young age after bringing hundreds of people to Christianity. In my research, I recognize that Sorwana often doubled down in her arguments when she was challenged, but often found clever Bible-based evidence to support her ideas. It was very smooth. There was definitely a war of words going on, and Sor Juana, despite herself, couldn't let the situation go. 
She came back at the bishop, writing a piece in self-defense called Reply to Sister Filoti of the Cross. In this document, Sorwana defends not just her right to knowledge, but every woman's right to knowledge. She talks about being forbidden to be taught to read and how her response was to read anything she could get her hands on as a child. She famously remarked that one can perfectly well philosophize while cooking dinner. She defends her studies of human arts and sciences as a way to understand sacred theology. And she points out that there are women in the Bible who are educated and strong. She states that women are entitled to private instruction and says that by putting women, specifically older women, in positions of authority, women could educate other women, avoiding the potentially dangerous situations involving male teachers in intimate settings with young female students. Sorwana does take ownership for her flaws of not always being religiously inclined, but states that it's a personal flaw in herself and not a response to educating women in general. I'm sure that you can imagine how her response was received by church leadership. I'm sure they wondered why she couldn't just sit quietly and do as she was told. Sorwana wrote, What is the devil in my being a woman? Am I, by virtue of my gender, condemned to eternal silence? Isn't silence a form of compliance, the art of saying without saying? She confessed her insignificance as a woman, her vile nature and unworthiness. She confessed because she didn't want to, quote, quarrel with the holy office, for I am ignorant and I tremble that I may express some proposition that will cause offense or twist the true meaning of some scripture, unquote. Sorwana was repeatedly criticized for believing that her writing was her life's goal. The church applied constant pressure, telling her that community work and prayer should be her focus. Eventually, it seems like the pressure and constant threats of censure broke down Sorwana's will. Resigned, Sorwana wrote, You will command what I am to do. I will weaken and dull the workings of my feeble reason. And that was exactly what the church expected of her going forward. They wanted complete silence and full abstention from all of her literary endeavors. No more writing, no more reading. She complied. Sorwana was silenced for the last three years of her life. She signed documents agreeing to undergo penance for her wayward ways. In 1964, she signed one with, I, the worst of all women. She stopped writing, and her treasured library was dissolved. There's conflicting reports, but she either sold her books and instruments for very little money or the collections were taken away as punishment. Either way, as I read about this part of her life, my heart broke. Her spirit just seemed to dim. She wrote that she regretted having lived so long without religion in a religious community. She renewed her religious vows and devoted herself to caring for the older sick nuns in the convent. During an especially devastating plague in 1695, Swarwana died. After her death, Sorwana's work was all but lost for centuries. 
Then, in the 1970s, new translations of her writings were created, and easily recognized as a badass woman, she began to become a feminist icon. She was celebrated as someone who had pushed hard against a chauvinistic and authoritarian culture. At the time of her life, her ideas were controversial and threatening. Today, however, she's a safe rebel, someone who would simply be speaking the truth by today's standards. The convent where Sorwana lived and wrote was renovated in the 1970s, and bones that were believed to be Sorwana's were discovered. In 1979, the Mexican government founded the University of the Cloister of Sorwana there, a delayed tribute to a woman whose thirst for knowledge was never satisfied. In 1995, Sorwana's name was inscribed in gold on the Wall of Honor in the Mexican Congress. And last year, 2022, the Episcopal Church of the United States gave final approval and added her feast to the liturgical calendar. Her feast day is April 18th, which, if you're listening to this episode the week it drops, it's next Tuesday. Sorwana's story and her accomplishments have elevated her as a national icon in Mexico. I spoke with a friend who grew up in Mexico about Sorwana, and she said that everyone in Mexico is familiar with her story. After all, as I teased in the opener of this episode, Sorwana has been a reoccurring icon on various coins and bills of Mexican currency. I love that Sorwana is well known in her own birthplace, but I also think that everyone everywhere can find a little inspiration in her story. In a man's world run by men and for men, Sorwana made a space for herself to be her most authentic self. Octavio Paz, who wrote the biography Sorwana or The Traps of Faith, said, Her works tell us something, but to understand that something, we must realize that it is utterance surrounded by silence. The silence of the things that cannot be said. The things she cannot say are determined by the invisible presence of her dread readers, the clergy who read and disagreed with her work, or dismissed her viewpoints. An understanding of Sorwana's work must include an understanding of the prohibitions that her work confronts. I want to give a special shout out to my friend Angelina, who helped me with the pronunciations of names and places in this episode. Any errors are mine, but I promise that I tried my best. I also want to call out the article called The Tenth Muse, Sorwana Inez de la Cruz, written by Elodie Barnes for the Literary Ladies Guide. It was such a great resource as I was learning about Sorwana. Thank you so much for listening this week. Please visit our Instagram at Have You Met Her Podcast for some images of Sorwana Inez de la Cruz and a peek at the resources that I used. Please rate and review the podcast if you're enjoying it. Doing this allows others who might find it interesting to find it. Share it with your friends. If you have an idea for a future episode, please email me at have you met her podcast at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe on whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next week.